Hello and welcome to another episode of Unfiltered. I'm Yanina Doyle. I'm Jonathan Kleeman. And we have an amazing guest, our first winemaker. Charlie, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Charlie Holland, uh, head winemaker at Gusborne. Um, and excuse the noise, the wind, the spiders that may be crawling on our faces. Uh, we're at the PX Festival right now, so we're out in nature. Yeah, we are. So we, we have got a lot of background noise for a change, and we're on phones recording, so... Yeah, we're just going to see what happens, but as long as you can hear us... Sorry, uh... it's my hard work later on. That's what <laughs> <laughs> More editing for you. Um, Charlie, honestly, these wines, we've just done a Blanc de Blanc uh, vertical tasting of your wines. They're, they're fabulous. They're, they're all so Thank different. Thank you very much. Um, I think in Laura Reese's words, she's very regretful that she's probably the best gospel tasting she's ever done and then and she's, allowed to drink yeah, anything. Yeah, she's pregnant, so she's <laughs> <laughs> having to spit everything. I think everything about these wines, what I love, there's this real freshness, real beautiful lemony nature, um, and obviously the acidity is really vibrant, and they're just so interesting, the older vintages that are ageing beautifully. But I mean, you t- t- tell us, tell us what, I mean... How did Gusborne start? How did you start? Uh, so, oh, Gusborne, um, the estate where we're based uh, on in the in the south, in the south coast of Kent, is uh, goes back to the 1400s. It's really historic, um, and it's long been known for sorting out that part of the world, Garden of England, for growing growing all sorts of fruits. Um, but in more recent years, we sort of planted vineyards there. About 15 years ago, the first vineyards were planted. Um, and yeah, we, we just grow the three classic uh, varieties. This we're making is only sparkling. sparkling. Wine. We, we yes, make the majority make sparkling wine, ninety-five percent sparkling wine, yeah. and that's what we focus on. And it's Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, traditional method sparkling wine. But you yeah. do have a little bit of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that does get released every now and then, which are fantastic, by the way. Still wines. I have tried both before. And well, thank you very much. Pinot's done very we, well, actually. Hasn't it? it does. It does very well. And with the uh, the sixteen wines we're on at the moment are amazing. Uh, and they, we have a rule where, you know, we grow a lot of uh, Burgundian clones from these varieties. Mm-hmm. and we're on slightly heavier soil so if the conditions are right they can make some exceptional still wines but only if it gets warm enough if it doesn't it stays in the sparkling and we're and so, you're, in the spark- so you're going to be making a lot more still perhaps then for 2018 vintage. 2008 was sensational so we've made some you know again we made some uh, wines with 12 and a half percent natural alcohol uh, really ripe full and uh, I think you know we tasted them we thought these these don't taste English these could be you know some somewhere much more um, really, exotic I'm really I'm so excited to taste some of these I've seen some of the English wines especially the Pinots I've tried weirdly we tend to go almost taste a bit more New Worldy than, yeah. than you'd think Bur- well you think Burgundy is where we'd go but it doesn't tend to go a bit well, more New Worldy that's going to be the thing if, if, if with climate change we still we start you know still picking earlier and it's getting riper that is going to be the interesting thing are we going to be more New World in style for our Pinot or are they going and, and with age, are they going to get really earthy and mushroomy? Are they going to stay? Yeah, we're going to be more British with our with our pinots. Mm. They'll be British pinots. <laughs> no, but you know, but people are going to come. People are going to pair regardless, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are going to. They, they're going to compare and. It's interesting to see what people say. And I, th- I think, um, yeah, well, our, ours is definitely New World, I'd say that. With our sparkling, we're much more Old World in style. I think mm. the nuanced tertiary flavours. With our Pinot, especially, it's more, more New World in style. Uh, why is that? I mean, I think, you know, again, we're sort of trying to embrace this freshness and this yeah. vibrance in the wines. And the wines, the Pinots especially, have this lovely sort of purity of fruit and cherries and raspberries. So we tried to harness that. Mm. Um, and it sort of works more than the tertiary style. But um, I'm sure we'll develop that. That may, that must, I suppose, change with age of vine and everything else. Exactly. To go exactly. On yeah. and length and, of time in bottle. I mean, as you were saying, Gusborn started in 2006, so it's only it's now it's sort of into your. You were saying a 40, 15 years you've sort of been working on the land for. So yeah, well, we were saying earlier, you know, the old cliche that you, uh, or the ad- adage you say that you, it takes 10 years to understand your vineyard, another 10 years to learn how to make the wine from those vineyards. So we're we're probably about three quarters through our journey on that. 
You must. You're getting impatient. Are you impatient? Are you an impatient person? You can't be impatient with sparkling that, yeah, wine. Yeah. Uh, you can't because uh, the danger is. You know, your best friends are time and patience. Yeah. And you need to let these wines really express themselves. And if you rush it, you'll have an inferior product. Yeah, I couldn't so. be a sparkling wine maker. I've no. not got that patience. I mean, I, I love sparkling wine, but I just I think the idea of having to make something cool in in three years, I'll see how this turns out. Yeah. yeah after you yeah, put it into the bottle, yeah. I'd be just sitting by the bottles every day, nervously and looking at them. I started a new job okay? by then. Yeah. They were right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so what were you? Ta- oh, you've been there since the beginning. You've been at Gusmonsi. No. I, I, I joined I joined uh, Gusmon about six and a half years ago as head winemaker, but I've been working with the wines for about ten years now okay. uh, in a previous job. Was, Were you was, moonlighting was, a little? Not moonlighting, but uh, we, we, we had, it was made at another, another uh, winemaker where I used to work as well. So okay. I've got the knowledge and been working for it for that period of time. But in 2013, uh, I, I came on full-time as head winemaker and we, yeah. we built the facilities there and everything was made on site. Oh, so uh, actually everything is, in terms of the, the barrels, and, or sorry, tank shall I say, and the equipment, everything is really modernised and got bigger Ev- or something? Yeah, ev- and everything's, everything's there on site. I mean, the big thing is we, uh, we, you know, we've just got the vineyards. We've got two thirds of our vineyards in Kent and a third in Sussex, um, but everything is, is controlled and owned by us. And every, yeah, so, and all the vineyards are your own. You're not yeah, buying yeah. in any fruits. No, and that's really important. I mean, it seems like a very obvious thing to say, but it, it's really important to have that uh, complete control over the process. So from a quality point of view, but also you're trying to make wines that have this real sense of place and they talk about where they're from. And if you're buying fruit in, you lose that. So, mm. um, so yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's, that's really important that we, we just have the fruit that we've got. It does mean that you know you're, you're at risk. You know, sort of a you've just got your all your eggs in one basket as such. So, so we we're very careful and very protective over the grapes we grow because they're very mm. valuable to us. So we're gonna taste the which was actually I think was my favourite. I think 2010 Blanc de Blanc. It is aging stunningly. So. You haven't stopped talking about it, so I have a feeling it's definitely is your favourite. This is definitely my favourite. Um, tell yeah, I mean. Tell us a little bit more about the Blanc de Blanc. We obviously know, 100% Chardonnay. Yeah. So this is 2010. So this wine, um, you know, for us, I think sometimes the the cooler vintages are actually our better vintages in terms of they're the ones that really seem to age for a lot longer. And the cooler vintages generally have a longer growing season. So you have more time to preserve acidity, but also have all these lovely spectrum of flavours. And this wine in particular, um, the majority of the grapes that went into this wine come from one of our vineyards called Boot Hill. And for, for some reason, you know, um, not exactly sure why it is, but this one vineyard each year, it has a certain flavour profile, which is all about this salty salinity, uh, this sort of minerality. Do you think it's an effect, because um, you're relatively close to the sea for an English vineyard, do you think some of that aspect comes from there into the soil? or uh, Maybe, I mean, you know, we're six miles from the sea. There's, you're there's, right by Camasans, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah but we're just about six, mi- six miles I mean, you're, you're, you're just like far enough away that you don't quite catch any of the cold air coming in, but yeah. you're close enough that it also brings sort of... That's it, so we usually get a nice warming breeze coming up, yeah. which helps with, you know, mm-hmm. keeping the disease down and everything else, but it's a nice warm breeze, but this one particular block... It just always seems to have this, this lovely minerality, and uh, uh, we've tried to work out exactly why it is. But you know, that's the beauty of terroir. That's the beauty yeah. of um, the wines. You're not exactly sure why it has this character, but every year all the wines taste blind, and they're all assessed blind. And this one wine always seems to get the same sort of tasting notes. It's our most mineral block, so we really try to sort of celebrate that. So you find that you're sort of more almost your your kind of king block for your your sort of. It's our it's our blonde blonde. Uh, it's our um, our coat de blonde. Yeah. Really yeah. But it's always good to have that. I think everything that takes the character of the vineyard like this is like your sort of little baby, and then everywhere else is sort of sort of built up around that. I think if you go to any vineyard, they always have a favourite part. Yeah, I, yeah, they do, and. Um, and the more we're getting, you know, the more we're getting to know our vineyards and our blocks as well. We are 
we're doing lots of little individual single volume vineyard blocks and we're just trying to you know pick them separately ferment them separately bottle them separately and yeah. then leave them for four or five years and then understand what you've got and that's why it's such a long uh, lengthy process so you make are you with time kind of you said more single blocks you're kind of again checking them more checking the soil the quality and and segregating them and yes. kind of so you have again year on year then so as as you said 10 years of actual the, the vineyards growing and being being great 10 years of understanding the wine so this is exactly it. in a few more years time you're going to have it well they're fabulous now so i mean but maybe, this, is, you know, this is exciting time really for, exciting really exciting and you um yeah, I think I think you you try to look at what you, whichever different vineyard gives you that sort of characteristic. What is that characteristic? How does it turn out? The only way you can do that is to sort of make a thousand bottles of it. So it's kind of a it's a really exciting time for us. I mean, I, I'm always I'm always so annoyed by people with wine making because it's, especially we see people and it's kind of I, I love seeing um, vineyards try and test and play around with things. You do some vineyards with people. My granddad did this. My dad did this. I'm going to do the exact same thing. And they don't change anything. And you go to a lot of other vineyards where they are playing and changing, but also doing that, that is a cost risk because you're losing whatever land that costs to do that, whatever production is to make those little bottles. It's always going to be, hopefully it'll pay off at the end because you're going to learn more and experience more. But to a lot of people, and I mean, the economics of winemaking is something people don't talk about enough sometimes. It is a huge amount of risk and cost. You know, yep. In your case, as you were saying earlier, when you're making any English sparkling wine, especially if it's a new vineyard, it's 10 years before you even sell a bottle. Yeah. From yes. like planting to production to aging, you're not going to see anything change in 10 Charlie's years. And Charlie's very patient. <laughs> and yeah, as I said, Charlie's a very patient man. Um, and I think that that makes such a big difference. But I mean, even from the experiment, you know, cool, we're going to try out this like different clone. You've got to wait three years to see that clone come up. And then after that clone comes up, you're going to go play with it, then vinify it. Then you know, it's just 10 years is an experiment. So it's, it's a hell and of you a can't, lot. And you can't change too much in one season because you want to have that consistency of style and of what you do. And if you change all the everything at one point you move in the goalposts so you can only do sort of you know three or four four or five trials a year to see how things are going and uh, you know the advice I got from my chairman when I first started there he says if you aren't ruining you know a couple of thousand bottles a year then you're not doing your job properly because you're, <laughs> you're not challenging yourself so we've got to keep pushing ourselves forward in these trials mm. but um, but at the same time you know I'm always very je je uh, jealous when you look at brewers or distillers because they can just do stuff on a micro level and then scale up scale down and we just don't have that ability because yeah. you only get one shot a year. So it's that it's it's a fine balance between keeping your eyes on the prize, and making good wine, but then making sure you're innovating, you're challenging every time. I mean, it's for saying now, ironically, I've gone and blended my own gin. Okay. I've made my own yeah. gin for where I work. It's for wait, wait, out. plug. What's the gin called? Gin Less Ordinary. You know, it's for the UK. Carry on. Um, and, um, but doing that was it was because I was really working with someone who already does the distilling process. I went up there, worked in the blend, and it was very easy to really make a finished product very quickly taste it and make sure I liked it and then from then production straight away so for me it was a process of a probably about we spent more time working on the marketing than I did on the blend put it that way yeah. Yeah. Um, and then comparing it to champagne making you've got all the time in the world to work on the marketing because you've got so much time to actually produce the product I mean, it's just it's it's so, it's, I'm always so impressed with it, the patience people have to have and the commitment you have to have, because it really is a commitment to making those wines as well. It is, and it's, you know, people will say it's, uh, I mean, this isn't really a family business to work in, but it's a generational business, because you, you're making decisions and doing things that people will benefit in 10, 15 years sometimes. Mm. Um, so you have to, and it's all about the, you know, it's about those producer and it's about the stocks and the, the vineyard and what you've got. Um, so, so yeah, we, we, you have to take a very long-term view on these things. What got you into winemaking? Um, I went to I went to Australia about twenty years ago. Okay. And um, I. What crime did you commit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
he, he can't say. <laughs> they, 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 they might kill him. Uh, and, and he's yeah. this time, he's fine. He's allowed back yeah. now, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's been a long time. Um, and I got a job. Uh, one of my, my sister's best friends uh, had worked on a vineyard. She said, I'll get you a job. And I sort of baptism of fire, knew nothing about wine at all. And then thought, this is, a, this is amazing. You can do this for a job. You know, you can be messing around in the cellar and grapes coming in and fermenting. And thought, this is, this is great fun. So I, I did that and then came back to England and thought, okay, this is better than my sort of desk job that I was currently doing. Mm -hmm. And um, I went back and studied. Uh, got a degree in winemaking. Did you put Plumpton? Mm -hmm. Plumpton. Plumpton. And then I went to, um, and then you, you do as lots of winemakers do, you then go travelling around the world. And to be fair, I always thought I'd be somewhere hot. Warmer and, and, and yeah. more consistent. Yeah. And, and your idea was like, oh, I, I can go do the same thing in Australia somewhere, nice and beautiful. It's an and then he said, you're, an in, you're in Kent in the winter, and the, yeah, pruning. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then I think it, you know one thing leads to another, and I ended up coming back to England. But honestly, uh, it, it's very rare you get this new opportunity for a new vineyard that's on the up that comes on in the world of wine. I really think Eng rare. English sparkling wine has so much attention right now. Um, we've talked about it in uh, one of our previous episodes on the fine wine, yep. you know, what is fine wine? We've got another episode. And I brought an English sparkling wine onto the episode as what is the future for fine wine? Because I really think, it, you know, with climate change, which yes is bad, I think is good for us. And I think that we now we have the technology, we have the knowledge, and we have incredible vineyards and we have more reserve stock for the people that want to do non-vintage. And I think it's also having people... Which brings me on to your doing only vintage, but carry on. People doing, also having the knowledge as well, though, which is, I think, if you went to English winemaking, it's, I think it's about three or four winemakers I can name who are, like, the guys who've been doing it for 30 years in England and are well-known. Yeah. Besides that, that's all we had. Yeah. If you go next door to France, you've got hundreds Unlimited. of thousands yeah. of people who've been doing it all their life yeah, so yeah. I mean even trying to get that knowledge over here has been very difficult yeah. I don't think you can really convince a French vigneron but you probably could now you can years. we have champagne houses in England yeah, now, no, so. yeah. 10 20 years ago you would not have convinced a no, no. top winemaker from France to come over to England and start an English winery and, wine and I think what, what happened ago you know I guess you know the modern winemaking in England started in the 50s and the general perceived wisdom there was you know we've got a very cold climate very similar to Germany grow Germanic hybrids and um, and it wasn't until about 30 years ago people say hang on a minute our, our nearest neighbours champagne and, uh, and they make sparkling wine and people started the pioneers started doing it then mm. and then on the back of that people sort of said oh these guys are doing pretty well and then with that comes investment with investment comes knowledge experience expertise and it's just completely changed you know i've been involved in english one for about 15 years ago now but and um it's unrecognizable to when i started it's it, it, it's also um i mean it's funny also because really the history with england and sparkling wine making officially as far as we know we were the first country to start doing it as well weren't we um we were the first people who had well the, the methods uh a guy called yeah uh, Christopher Merritt who created Method Anglais, so actually making uh, sparkling wine. He was a bottle maker who could make Did, fortified we, glass. We create we created the strength of the bottle That's to right. actually we make had, sparkling we had, possible. We right? had cold fired furnaces, whereas the French had wood fired ones. So we could get a hotter mm. furnace and make stronger bottles. But was it also it was, it was an evidence? There was I'm pretty sure it was also I can't remember who it was. It's Christopher Merritt who originally he found people doing it in the barrels in the UK anyway. When bad wine would come over from France in London, they'd throw yeast into the barrel and create a second fermentation yeah the earliest ones they were actually, they were getting molasses putting molasses oh, in the bottles it, yeah. to try and sort of encourage the second fermentation to come on and that was I think it was you know some years before Dom Perignon set foot in, in he, Champagne and his was also I think a lot of people don't realize a lot of time the French one claimed Dom Perignon invented sparkling wine but actually it was happening by accident in Champagne and he was trying to get, rid, trying of to get rid of it yeah. Dom Perignon did not taste the stars he did not call his friends over but, that, it's, that, but, but he, great marketing but his, it was his 
friend was Dom Brunard, and then it was his nephew who started the first Champagne House. So there is a weird link, but he didn't create blending, though, which is one big thing. I think that's that right. Yes, I'm large. Yeah. Who created blending? Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. Oh, he did yeah. create. Oh, Dom Perignon did create. To try and get rid of the bubbles. That was the point. The bubbles were happening by accident. So the bu- bubbles happening in the mm. barrels and blowing barrels up when the yeast stopped fermenting. And then when it would start re-fermenting again when it got warmer, when it f- went further down south, yeah. the barrels were blowing up and Don Perron hated this as it was a bit of a problem. And then uh, he's invented the assemblage to get rid of that. Yeah. But before this point in England, we were already getting bad wines and re-putting yeast in them to try and make them taste better. So it was uh, always sort of Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things. I think they've, they've obviously gone on from that to create this amazing industry and product that it is. Mm-hmm. You know, 200 years of, of knowledge. That, it did a lot better uh, with it than we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, we talk. I, I mentioned anyway something which I think is great for for England. That again, the fact that we've got all this re- reserve stock, and so when it comes to doing the non-vintages, we can create more consistency. But interesting for you guys, you are focusing on vintage. Everything yeah. is vintage here. You don't want to do a non-vintage. No, it's it's part of our our philosophy. Really, is that where we're selling our wines. You know, maybe. in mostly into the independent uh, retailers and fine dining and there's generally someone on a sommelier or someone on side who will be able to tell the story about where the wine has come from and and all about the estate and everything else and we actually think that the the vintage are really important parts of that story and it's quite a nice interesting talking point that you can tell this was the year it's another it's another easy way to sort of sell the wine so it's we think if you're trying to make wines that talk of providence and express themselves then actually that talking about that year was grown in is really important mm. so we you know we we, um, we focus very much on, on individual vintages and not non-vintage. Obviously the challenge here comes is that, you know, how do you make consistent wine each year? How do you do that? With and, a lot of problems. Yeah, and people say, you know, what makes you arrogant enough you can make a vintage champagne each year? And, and I think what, what we find is, you know, for us, we only have our own fruit. So again, as I said, we, we're in complete control of the quality, but also everything is picked separately. Everything is hamping separately, pressed separately, fermented separately. And at the end of the process, we'll maybe have 100 different tanks, 180 barrels. And we can reconstruct these blends from our raw components, but within one year. Um, and that's how we kind of get that consistency, but also are able to express the year it comes from. So we just, let's go back to the 2010. Like we're yeah. drinking it. We haven't even commented on it. I love, first of all, I love as well how it's aging. This real almost caramel toffee note with also really licorice sweet spices, um, but still a decent amount of fruit and lovely, lovely acidity. I, I mean, the acidity is, is a fantastic structure. Yeah. Still, um, yeah. I, I, we were talking earlier about the one of the defining aspects of Gus Bourne is, in, especially in the Kent, is the, the clay vineyards. Yeah. And so you have quite a lot of vineyard, a lot of the, the, the grapes part in clay, you see the characteristics it gives the wine. The Pinots almost don't even take on the more red berry flavours, they take on more sort of intense yeah. white uh, white fruit flavours. Um, so it kind of gives us real kind of signature to the wines. And I think when we talk about, about the evolution, maybe that comes out more and more in the evolution, you're getting these riper sort of nicknames almost like nectarine and orangey fruits coming through mm. yep. instead of riper red fruits or um, apples coming through which makes it quite uh, yeah yeah and uh, you know I think what we're trying to achieve with uh, the, the Chardonnay in particular um, is always a balance between getting that minerality we talked about but also getting that lovely citrus fruit that Chardonnay shows and then the third element is that lovely creaminess that comes mm. from, from being on the lees and developing and, and this is three years on the lees isn't it the this is three years on the lees and a lot yep. longer than we keep on, on cork but um but it, for me it just shows how well these wines age and 2010 you know it's, it's a nine-year-old wine now and it's still full of life oh absolutely full of oh yeah it's, it's not I, I don't think it's really even lost a beat it's just evolved which it is uh, a really great a great thing but it's almost what you know you're comparing it kind of compared to vintage champagne that's what vintage champagne should do they should yeah. evolve in the bottle not necessarily fall apart and this 
does that in spades. So. Can I ask about the, the ageing? Now, it's one thing, I, there's not really, as far as I know, and tell me if I'm wrong, in England, we don't have a, you know, like, wheat cremants, um, nine months ageing on the lees, champagne, 15 months um, minimum. But, but in England, we're making effectively uh, as good as very often even better than champagne but we don't have a minimum aging or a requirement there or is, a there's, there's a minimum aging yeah is I mean, there? it has to spend it's basically a year from when you harvest it to when you release it to, which which equates to generally about nine months okay, on so, the leaves so, so there is so there is laws in place there but, is. It's, but it's very sort of but very few people do it though well it's, i mean that's we're aging much more than that we're anyway, keeping it, yeah much yeah. people most people do a lot more or yeah. the good producers are doing a lot more um and the way that the industry is you know and i, I support this i don't think we necessarily need to sort of increase the, the the laws to 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 get better wines because I think you you are at our stage in the industry going to restrict some creativity. Yeah, for sure. Um, but what you'll find is that the good producers are doing that anywhere and they're setting their own products. Those okay. could restrict say smaller vineyards who are just starting producing their first one or two products that maybe makes their business financially viable to then go on and make a better product later. Yeah, absolutely. Which is also yeah. of course a, a big tough entry to the market. We start making it quite yep. regulated. Yeah. What do you feel about? Um, I need to ask that it's earlier, so I'll put it on the spot now. About <laughs> the idea of doing more. I've heard pros and cons of doing more regionality, so like wines of Kent or wines of Sussex or wines of Hampshire. Are you pro it or do you find that, and the argument I've had against it from some people is a lot of people like yourselves have vineyards in lots of different places. Um, and with the way that English winemaking is, no one's producing huge amounts. Again, they feel it's going to be more of a limiter than it is to be, it's better to stick to wines of England. Than like that. Yeah, well, we've got two thirds of our vineyard in Kent on a heavier soils, clay soils, a third of our vineyard in Sussex on chalk soils. So we, we straddle two different counties as well. Um, personally, what, what I, the benefit for me is what they can both do together. Yeah. And it's this synergy between them as opposed to, to how they um, how they're better or worse than each other. We find that the ones in Kent, you know, they're generally more muscular, more powerful, more rounder. Uh, the ones in Sussex are more elegant and thinky. And um, uh, and they, they're sort of probably more elegant and wine, focused in style. The wine of the people. <laughs> Sorry? The wine of the people. The wine, yeah, well, probably both, I think. But, but um, what we find is that the, um, the you know, in, in a hot year, for instance, in Kent, uh, we need a bit of acidity, and they're actually lacking it. And bringing the fruit over from Sussex gives it that vibrancy. Mm, and, interesting. And, and equally, if it's in a very cold year, Sussex is a, on its own is quite austere, and you need this roundness from Kent. So they, they complement each other and make the wines better. Yeah, the reason I ask is obviously where I'm located in the shop, we're right on the border with Essex. And the funny thing I'm finding more and more, it seems to turn out one of the best places producing grapes from the UK is Essex. But wineries don't really? want to admit that they, yeah, it's one of the best, especially for reds, one of the best places in the UK. Charlie's nodding. Yeah, no, it's true. There's some amazing though. No one wants to put Essex on their label. So people are buying grapes from Essex and then blending with their other grapes. Would, would, and not, would not the Essex it. wines have loads of jewels on them? Would they really be, <laughs> really blingy? I'm, I'm going to start an Essex winery called the Vajazzle, and that can be a. I mean, be you, a, it would sell uh, a lot of people. It'd be in a brown tan bottle. I'm not sure if it goes with the kind of professionalism and the but hard work that, that is deserved for English I was talking about the um, Lime Bay, as I mentioned to you earlier, like they did a really good red one year. Yeah. That fruit, they do admit, comes from Essex in the bottom. Yeah. It's not coming from down in Devon, because you wouldn't have got the same, the same stuff. No. Uh, there's, there's a guy who's been doing all the mapping of all the best viticultural land and the best climate. Is that, quite new? Is that recently? One. Yeah, fairly re- recently. Um, and he's sort of looked at where all the vineyards are planted at the moment. Uh-huh. And they're all based in Sussex, Kent, Hampshire. Big bulk, isn't and it? Then, so, and then you look at where you can grow it, and it's all the way from, you know, uh, Cornwall all the way up, but as you say, up into Suffolk basically, and all yeah. that 
the further um, east you go, the better when, uh, weather you have. Yeah, the there's, there's the a lot less Atlantic. rain, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it the driest place in England on that there's, kind of coastline? Yeah, there's, there's a lot less rain that comes mm. over from the Atlantic the further east you go. Yeah, they tend to, get, you tend um, to get avoid everything because a lot of rain gets dissipated over Wales, doesn't it, before it gets yeah. there. Yeah, lots in Wales. But because the mountains, so it gets yeah. dissipated, well, yeah. hills. But, um, yeah. And then, obviously, also the other issues I saw when the guys around Sharp and a lot of the things like around the River Dart, they don't get problems with frost because they're so close to a river. Yep. Which I wonder also with you guys being close to the sea. sea. That a, as well yeah, to and it, that. it gives you a mediating factor. So we never get crazy hot weather, we never get really uh, very, very cold weather. So that, that water mass helps to sort of just keep it fairly temperate. I mean, I should say also for a listener to everyone who's next, but um, the big issue we've had in the UK over the last few years, especially with changing climate, while we've had a lot more heat in the summers, we have also had a lot more shock frost. Um, and it's been happening a lot just after flowering starts, and that's a really dangerous period because it happens then, it kills a lot of the potential grapes that could grow. Yeah. Um, and so if you're in areas like near the coast or if you're near water, like a good good sized river, that media it basically stops that happening, it means the temperatures are a little bit more consistent. That's right, yeah. And yeah. that your night temperatures have dropped so much, you tend to not get frost weirdly near water, even if it's cold water, it yep. tends to stop that happening. While if you're very continental or very inland, you've got no water around you, frost can be a real Hampshire is one of the worst places for it where they grow great fruit but when frost happens they get hit really hard. Yeah and that has happened I mean it's the whole climate change thing I think people sort of say oh you know it's great for English wine that you've got climate change and I say well you know it's great that we can now ripen fruit to a much greater level than we used to but what comes hand in hand with that is changeable weather and unpredictable weather patterns I mean, and yeah, that's just really difficult to manage. And it's, I, I, I saw it happen in Bordeaux and again in Hampshire in the UK where not just a little bit not 10% entire areas were just wiped out by frost yeah and i, yeah. I can only imagine if you're a winemaker and you go well my my year's already completely blown out of the water yeah. and you're still gonna have to work on the vine just to prune and do all the other work you're gonna make no money yeah that's got to be uh it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking yeah. which is why as i say you know the first thing you've got to do when you choose a vineyard site is just as much as possible ensure that, that site is is risk-free and you know our, our sites you know you obviously collect weather data weather data for for sort of you know Decades. Point, if I remember rightly, you know, this, you've got lot, quite a lot of woodland around you as well. We have, they're well, they're well protected and you know, we're, we're generally sort of fairly frost, uh, frost risk free. Yeah, cool. So, um, also, quick some of the wine we're tasting now because it was quite exciting. So, this is our, we've got our two, 2010 uh, Lake Disgorge, the Brute Reserve. So, this is a blend of all three varieties we grow. And, um, and this is, this is different from the last one we tried, which had three years on the lees and a long time on the cork. This has had, um, I think, eight years on, on the lees and, and a short time on the cork. And really, that's a sort of just uh, to give this lovely weight and roundness and texture to the wine. It's, it's a whole and, different uh, evolution in the bottle. I mean, it's still got the acidity, um, and the acidity almost hasn't dissipated, but the, the flavour textures, the brioche notes are much more mellowed but there's more complexity to them if that makes sense so instead of yeah. being intense they're there but they seem more complex there's quite a lot more going on in that that sort of spectrum of tertiary flavors yeah and it's got all these patisserie notes and all these sort of flaky pastries yeah, yeah, really flaky it smells like you've walked into someone's kitchen after they've just been preparing something absolutely it's got that kind of note to it it's delicious I mean, and this one is not blanc de blanc interesting this one enough. is a blend of all three we do um oh. so chardonnay pinot noir pinot Mounier. it's actually chardonnay dominant um but the the red the uh the pinots give this lovely weight and sort of texture and sort of smoothness to the wine. I have tried to interrogate Charlie if they're doing any other special releases coming out, but he's not giving anything away at the moment. We've got I some, to keep my eyes peeled. Well, so. John, we've got some really interesting stuff coming up next year, but that's all I can tell you. Next year. <laughs> okay. And uh, anything interesting that people, because we, you know, we're, we're getting kicked off the table now. Um, anything interesting that people should know about Gusborne? Or, uh, well, what's keep their coming eye out, or, what's happening? What yeah, you're just trying for? to get some more gossip again. 
No, he's in it for any new releases, or it's in 2014, obviously, it's the current release. 2014, and, you know, early next year, we've got some interesting stuff. Um, we have a, a Blanc Noir, which we're going to be releasing, which is That's very exciting, exciting for us. And then we have a, something big we're going to be releasing probably towards next the end of year, next yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, and, um, Watch you keep pushing, but that's all I'm telling you. <laughs> but people so, can, and how much, the 2014 Blanc de Blanc, which is the current release, how much, they can buy that from the website? They can buy it from the website. And the other thing to point out, you know, it's just say interesting things is you can come visit us. We're yeah. open, yeah. we have a lovely tasting room, and we're open seven days a week, all through the year. Um, and you can take yourself on a self-guided tour, or you can do a proper, mm. you know, mm. lovely food and drink it, it's experience. A, it's um, an amazing place to go visit as well. And the, I went to visit just after built the new, the new winery set up and everything, and it's, um, it's, it's, it's not a big, huge, intimidating place. Everyone's super friendly. Probably someone will be waving at you with dirt on their hands. It's, it's a proper, proper vineyard. Yeah. Uh, so, home, but it's, it's a lovely place. So everyone's, everyone's welcome. Please, please come visit us. Thank you so much. Thanks picking time. Yes. Come, yeah. time. come and help us at harvest. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Apologise to everyone with all the noise. It is typical English weather and it is pissing it down. So everybody came to where we were because we're by a bar. So hopefully you could uh, you can hear us. Any comments, questions? Have you guys tasted Gus Bourne? Do you have a favourite vintage? Let us know and you'll see us again in another episode of Unfiltered. Cheers, thank you very much. Bye. Thanks, bye. <laughs>